Hello, everybody. Um, thank you so much for coming along. Um, I don't think Richard Weatherly needs too much introduction, um, and he's probably best to explain to explain himself. But I would like to thank the National Gallery of Victoria for including us in their program. This is a first ever event for us. Um, and thanks, obviously, to Richard for being here. So hands together for Richard, and we'll pass it over. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for, for coming in to, uh, to, to, to see this this afternoon. And uh, did everyone hear me okay? Good, good. Now, um, it's lovely to be back in Port Ferry, actually. We rather miss Port Ferry because uh, my forebears came from this area, or three of them anyway. And um, it's been terrific. Jen and I went for a walk yesterday. We had the most ex exciting experience with an echidna that I've ever had. And uh, we had a really good view of the, uh, the, the uh, female fur seal up the Moyne. And uh, she came and splurging down along the boats all the way down. So it's just been really good to be back. But what this is about is about two or three years ago, I was sitting quietly working at my desk, minding my own business, and the phone rang. And a woman's voice said, hello, I'm the senior editor at a publishing company. Would you be interested in writing a book about Australian birds? Now, my mother brought me up to be very honest, so I said no. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it ultimately it progressed further and I acceded to their request. You'll be glad to know that uh, I was taken out to lunch recently by the same uh, publisher and she asked the question about doing a second book and I gave her the same answer. <laughs> we haven't negotiated past that at this stage. Anyway, that's... Ah. Too heavy-fisted on my, my thumb. Now, really the sort of, uh, sort of paintings I was wanting to do when I first started getting into painting birds was very much about the environment and the, uh, the habitat that birds live in because I th really think that uh, I'm an environmental painter and birds are really the focus on, uh, on what I'm painting. Uh, so that's the sort of painting I was doing 50 years ago. And uh, when I had my first exhibition in London, I think I was the youngest artist ever to have a one-man exhibition in, a, in that West End gallery. And it was a really moving experience for me because the first morning of an exhibition, there's always things to be set up and dealt with. And I got to the gallery early and in the, uh, the weather outside, it was too light to be called rain and too heavy to be called mist, but there was a little gentleman huddled with a plastic Macintosh around him and a little sou'wester over the cap. And I uh, said, would you like to come inside and keep warm? He said, oh yes, thank you very much. So I got about doing my things and he was standing there in the gallery. I suddenly looked round and he was, he was weeping. There were tears streaming down his eyes. So I went across and said, are you okay, sir? And he said, yeah. He said, you don't recognise me, do you? He said, I was your outmaster uh, in junior school. And uh, he said, uh, I retired to Edinburgh a few years ago and I've been on the train all night to come down to London because you're the first student I've ever had that's had a one-man exhibition in a West End gallery. It was just uh, such a lovely moment. And I can remember so well things that Peter Edwards helped me with when I was, uh, when I was a wee kid, both in sculpture and in painting. Now, the key to all artwork, to my mind, uh, is drawing. 
and it may be little sketches like this, uh, really designed to capture the character of the, of the subject. And uh, they can be turned into, uh, uh, in, into more careful drawings. And the real battle is to make sure that you don't lose the spontaneity between the sketch and the later drawings. And those drawings can be turned into coloured studies. And this work is all done building up the information about the bird, the familiarity, the understanding of the character uh, before uh, I, I move into a, into a painting. So I was thinking we might just take a, a little uh, step or two through a sketchbook. This is an African sketchbook. The sort of thing I'd look at there is, uh, I mean, there's two drawings of elephants, but the right-hand one I like because it's just got a little bit of movement, a little bit of character to it. So that's the sort of drawing I might pick out of a page of sketches to, uh, to work on. And uh, on the same sketchbook, some uh, white-faced tree ducks. And I, I quite like one or two of those. A couple of them I really, really dislike. But every time you're just drawing and drawing and drawing, there's nothing makes you look at something more carefully than if you draw it. And uh, you just don't rub out the mistakes. You just draw. That one doesn't work. Keep drawing the next one and pick the ones that are working. Of course, there are some that are much more scientifically set up and uh, more careful drawings that are done in the field, which are just there to give you more information, or give me more information anyway. And uh, little incidents that occur. That was in Chobe, and uh, I was meant to be in charge of 17 people who were scattered all over the place having morning tea when uh, there was a bit of an eruption in a, a herd of elephants and they came charging past. It's actually quite a dangerous situation, particularly if you've got people that uh, you're meant to be responsible for. I don't know whether the words in loco parentis are appropriate, but uh, um, but elephants are normally pretty peaceful. Um, down in the Ghana Zoo in the southwest of Zimbabwe, they were poached for so long by a bloke called Cecil Barnard, who was nicknamed uh, Burkenya. Um, and he was hunting this huge elephant with enormous tusks called Julamiti, meaning the one who stands taller than the trees. And I'm really sad that uh, there's a, a, an American who bribed the South African government to lead him to the to Julie Meaty, and those tusks now hang in the uh, American embassy in, in, in Johannesburg. Um, but one thing that I did learn in Chobe, uh, there was a uh, South Africans are really really bad with wildlife. They're, they're, they're quite renowned in the uh, tourism industry that uh, they've always got a girlfriend with them and they're always trying to be macho and prove how clever they are. And they push lions around, they push elephants around, and animals don't like it. And there was one day in Savuti, near Chobe, um, where uh, a South African couple had been messing around with one particular elephant and uh, nothing really much happened. And they went back into main camp that night and about 1.32 a.m., an elephant very, very quietly came into the camp, stooed through all the vehicles, sought out their particular vehicle, which was parked in the middle of the lot, trashed it completely, flattened it out into sheet metal, quietly walked out again and said, well, that's who, that's, that's who you're dealing with. Donald, Donald Trump looked quite mild in those circumstances. <laughs> this is an Antarctic uh, sketchbook, and... Uh, the Huskies were at Mawson, and sadly, in the rewriting of the Antarctic Treaty, uh, Australia conceded that the Huskies would be taken out of Mawson and sent to Canada. But they were a huge asset. As we know now, there are people uh, 
training dogs to help uh, people that have got uh, uh, psychological problems or autism. And the great thing about the Huskies at Mawson is that anyone who felt left out, who felt that he's, uh, he was homesick, that people uh, were uh, moving him away from the, uh, the, main, uh, the main group in the, in the camp, they could just go down and pet the Huskies and everyone was okay. And the top right-hand uh, dog there, that was a dog called Bear. And Bear was so quiet and so placid that uh, he was always free and he used to come and lie outside the nest and everyone could pet him any time. Mostly uh, the Huskies are a bit like the Irish. They'd rather have a fight than a feed. But, but the same thing uh, in, uh, in a sketchbook. There's always the environment that needs sketching. That's a view of Casey. Casey Station, and it's a very, very important little bay behind it. Uh, it's a, 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 an area of special scientific interest. And beyond that is the oldest American station of Wilkes, which was sold to the Australian government two years after they built it. And the Australians used for 12 years and then moved out, left it in an absolute disgrace. I mean, there was rubbish everywhere. There were dead huskies piled on a, uh, on a pallet, partially burnt. There were uh, dead seals piled on another pallet, which I imagine were, uh, were food for the huskies. But it was just something of which you can only be deeply ashamed as an Australian. And in the middle ground there is the old station at Casey, the, uh, the dongas which lead down uh, to the seafront. And in the middle is a, a really important uh, melt lake. And the, uh, the, the diesel uh, drums there, the diesel uh, storage uh, uh, cylinders, leaked into that uh, area of special scientific interest uh, a couple of years before I was down there. So it all needs to be recorded and dealt with in the sketchbook. That's uh, Rum Doodle from the hut near Mawson. That was a, uh, a, a male uh, emperor penguin who strolled in behind the husky lines one, uh, one, one day at Mawson. Just a great opportunity to sketch one. And uh, on the uh, marine research voyage, we went across to Davis Station in Casey. And at Davis, uh, I managed to crib a helicopter ride out to Hop Island, which is a really important seabird breeding area. And again, it's a great chance to draw things. So you uh, just record as many drawings as you can, little sketches. Uh, that was an Antarctic petrel, which was moving around there. And a Weddell seal. Actually, I describe in the book how uh, or had one that was uh, in a blizzard. It was just coming up and breathing in a little uh, little melt hole. And I stalked it, and uh, it just kept on coming, breathing quite rhythmically, and then going down. And then it came up and it saw me. And uh, it just, there wasn't a ripple. It just closed everything and sank, like, just very gently, and never came back again. But you just couldn't tell where it had left a ripple when it went. It won't go. Oh, sorry. Uh, all this was at the time that I was meant to be running a uh, merino stud, and my wife Jenny took care of all that while I was in Antarctica, which was tremendous. And one thing I did learn is that fellows are really, really bad at coming back from those sort of trips. You come back sort of full of what an adventure you've had, fantastic time, all these des descriptions of adventures, and uh, very little thanks for running the business, three businesses that she was running at that stage, plus two children, which were tougher than the businesses. And uh, so not nearly enough thanks and too much, too much uh, sharing of experiences. This is a, uh, a, 
a, just a little compendium of, uh, of incidents in Mexico. Um, I have friends who, or he is a, uh, an emeritus professor of uh, ecology, you know, uh, biology and evolutionary ecology at University of Arizona. And he spent 40 years uh, working on a book on birds in Mexico, you know, particularly in Sonora. And I went down to Mexico with him and his wife, who was the deputy of the Audubon Society, and fantastic birders, both of them. Went down there about four times with them, and Jenny came on one trip. Actually, that's the uh, the, the professor. Hang on, I'm allowed to. Oh, sorry. I'm very good on these things. Yeah. Oh, there we are. That's, what, that's him standing on his favourite river. Uh, riverside on the Rio Cocoyacque outside Alamo, and the uh, the mountain in the background is actually on site too. But those uh, those were all birds we saw on that trip. That just little experiences. There was a gift of gratitude for him uh, uh, for the tremendous times we had in Mexico. It, it was quite adventurous Mexico in those days, but at that time it was easier than it is now because. Uh, the, the early drug people were really starting to get into growing drugs. And if, you, uh, if you're trying to carve out a very meagre existence on a stony hillside somewhere in the Sierra Madre Occidental, you cannot be blamed for sowing the odd uh, marijuana seed, I don't think. And in those days, they were pretty keen to try and conceal the fact they were growing uh, drug crops. And uh, um, <laughs> trying to go into Hermosillo on the, uh, on the flats in the Sonora Desert, we were driving in there in a, uh, in a combi van and suddenly at a crossroads on this dirt road, this ute in, squealed a halt right on the crossroads and blocked our route. And two very, very scruffy men, uh, Mexican gentlemen got out, uh, one with a, the traditional handlebar moustache and uh, with a 44 Colt revolver, which he came round to the passenger side uh, where I was navigating, pointed to my right ear hold, cocked. Uh, Steve got the sawn off shotgun with the, uh, on the other side and it was suggested to us that uh, we mightn't worry, really want to go down the way we were going. Uh, fortunately, we had a bloke called Arnie Morehouse who worked for the Mexican Ag Department in the back seat and he was fluent in Spanish, which none of us were. So I said, Arnie, can you say to these hoons that in fact it's my mistake, I'm navigating and I come from uh, Australia and the reason we call it down under is everything's upside down. And they're absolutely right. I had the map upside down and we wanted to go that way, not that way. <laughs> and there was a smile spread over the faces of these two Mexicans. They stepped back, we did the U-turn and accelerated out of there. <laughs> but uh, it's much worse now because the drug barons are in control and their means of silencing you is to put a bullet in you and kick you behind a hollow log. And uh, So there's places that we would never go back to now that, uh, that I was lucky enough to see and uh, I really value the fact I did see them. It's difficult to leave Mexico without seeing at least some of the uh, the hummingbirds. I did actually think that the hummingbirds were insects when I first went to America, but in fact it proves that they are actually very highly modified birds. And uh, these are the, the least beautiful of all the hummingbirds. This is a thing called a plain-capped starthroat. And uh, one of the things I did learn about them, Ruth Russell, the, uh, the wife of uh, Steve Russell, the, the, the emeritus professor, was an absolute expert on, uh, on hummingbirds and she made up her own little tiny bands to band them and trap them and uh, taught me a lot about them. And they are very, very interesting birds. The, uh, 
These metallic colourings in feathers are always structural colours. Blues and, uh, and, and those sort of vivid greens are structural colours as opposed to uh, melatonin, which controls the sort of dark patterning on birds, and the reds and yellows, which are a, a, a dietary colour. Uh, and uh, the way to, to take blue out of a feather like that is to hit it with a hammer. The way to take the, uh, take the red out of a bird that's, uh, that's bright red is to starve it. And the more layers of reflected light there are in the feather, the brighter the, uh, the, the metallic colouring becomes. And they're fascinating little birds. They've got the most extraordinary display flights. They sort of go right up and they dive in a great U-shape and throw up again and they come back down again. That's the broad-tailed hummingbird. Well, another one might do little whirly gigs coming down. Everyone is different. Back at home, again, just trying to get the character of, of birds, little sketches done on 13th Beach at Bowen Head, that. Um, and sadly, there was a report in the newspaper about a, two months ago of a, uh, of a hooded plover that had uh, got tangled up in, in, uh, in, in thread from a beach towel and had died. And that was actually one that was tagged CP, which is the top left-hand bird. And I got to know her well over about three years. I was really sad to see her go. Character studies of red, uh, of yellow-tailed black cockatoos. Just always looking to keep that, that feeling of, of, of uh, character going. A little baby blue, boo book, which uh, was recovered from a nest that blew down in the Otways years ago. And uh, it became known as Chester. And uh, my, my son named it Chester on account of its Chester drawers. But it was banned from the house after about a year. and. Uh, it uh, just destroyed too many things in the house and uh, had, to, had to go out elsewhere. Brolgers bugling on a, on a swamp, just trying to get the feel of the situation. This was a, a sketch after the 2013 Grampians fires when we actually got, we had a place up there and uh, it was uh, just under 300 acres of bushland. It got burnt from fence to fence. And um, it was a bit naughty. I called it uh, a consequence of fire, but basically it's a, a picture of a, of a joey uh, uh, grey kangaroo and just a, a little watercolour sketch to record the, well, my feelings at the time anyway. This is a sketch from New Guinea, the bluebird of paradise. Um, actually, Jenny, I think, has retreated, uh, but her uh, original boyfriend when I first met her was... Uh, filming these birds in New Guinea, and he was the first person to ever record their display. It was absolutely not known up, up until now. And uh, they hang upside down underneath the branch, the male birds, and, uh, and really vibrate that, that patch on their, uh, on their breast. It's an extraordinary display. This is a little village called Jama on the, in the Western Sepik, just a record of a place we uh, operated from when we were looking for a, uh, a bird uh, that lives in the, uh, the rainforest and is very, very rarely recorded in New Guinea. And it was uh, one of the, the fairy wrens we needed to, to, to finish out our work on the, uh, the monograph that we were writing on fairy wrens. It was actually the progenitor of, the, uh, of, of a close relative which we described as a totally new bird for New Guinea. And this is the sort of field sketch that I might do, just quickly trying to record a posture or a moment. And that's the sort of drawing I might work it up into uh, to, to arrive it into a, uh, into a more, more suitable artwork. 
again, trying not to lose the character. All the wrens had to be drawn. Uh, I bet a CSIRO research ornithologist, Dick Shoddy, at the 1974 International Ornithological Congress, uh, it's a language all of its own, the uh, bird, birding, really, um, and we decided we'd write, or write and illustrate a book on the family Maluridae, the, uh, the fairy wrens, which was a really smart move on my part. I don't think I'd seen more than a couple of species. I left Canberra, sort of headed off to illustrate every bird. I don't think there'd be, an, uh, at that stage, would have, wouldn't have been another ornithologist in Australia that had seen all the species of fairy wrens. Very ambitious project for someone like that. We worked on it for eight years and eventually caught up with them all. But they all had to be... Uh, had to be drawn. That one is a, uh, a bird that wasn't described until 1967. And I can remember uh, being in the museum when, uh, when, when the, uh, the paper was being written. It was found by a bloke called Norm Favolero in the Baloo Overflow in about 1946, I think. And he saw it there and he knew it was a new species. But it took him all those years to go back and, uh, and find it again. And at that stage, it was the uh, one of the most recently described new birds for Australia. Quite different to the rest of the uh, the grass wrens, and more uh, a linkage between the emu wrens and the grass wrens. For all the uh, the paintings, there are botanical studies to be done as well, and uh, so careful drawings. Sometimes of the insects as well. That's the little uh, leaf hopper, the Eurymeloides uh, pulchra. And you can see the ants that uh, milk them of honeydew. So the ants guard the, uh, the, the, the insects, so they provide the honeydew. And the honeydew provides the, uh, the food stuff for the baby ants. So it's a very interesting symbiotic relationship. And you'll see that the, uh, um, the little picture of the Banksia, which I showed uh, two slides ago, is, reappears in reverse in a, in a little study of uh, New Holland honey eaters. I hate painting things if I don't know where I'm headed in the painting. So I do a lot of uh, lot of careful drawing and planning before I get into it, just to, so that I know what I'm doing. Just another drawing of a uh, of a snipe that's in Port Ferry, that's uh, down at the Powling Street wetlands, which I see is now absolutely written off. It's just got so much uh, junkus rush in it now that it's not in, not habitable by anything. I don't think. Drawing of an eland cow on a uh, property in uh, Zimbabwe, and its equivalent, a uh, an elk in Canada. The sort of things I'm I'm saying when you, when you're noticing uh, things when you're drawing this, the reflected light on that little line of hair down there. The sort of things that you you don't think about when you're painting, and unless you record those things as a drawing, it's uh, it, it's just it's it's not observed. Just a quick sketch of uh, one of my early peregrine falcons, the Sasa, uh, when she was hunting. And uh, her uh, full brother, Tambuti, a, a little tearsel. Just catching attitudes. That one is actually uh, it's a sketch that uh, was done uh, at an area in Wales, in Pembrokeshire, and uh, shown, shown me by a, a bloke who worked in Australia for years, a very good vet. And uh, it was a gift for him in gratitude for the time he spent taking me around Pembrokeshire. And that was a uh, another of the peregrines I had. 
I guess what I'm trying to point out is that every bird is its own individual. We look at a crowd of human beings and we can pick one uh, human being from another. And every bird is just as, uh, as different. And each has its own skills. When some have got an eye like Bradman, sometimes, some just trip over their feet every time they try and take a step. And uh, you just develop that relationship with a bird. If you draw it for long enough, you start to understand. You need to get into its, it, get into its head. That was Tambuti. Um, probably one of the most fun birds I've ever, ever flown. I described some fantastic flights with him in the book. And a, uh, a sketch study for a painting just a finished drawing worked up from the sketches I had just to get the details there. So it's virtually a matter of transcribing the, uh, the bird into the, into the landscape when it comes to painting it. Another study, a painted study of a black-shouldered kite down at Werribee. And a juvenile uh, black-shouldered kite. I had, uh, um, I had a couple of black-shouldered kites I uh, was given by what was then known as fisheries and wildlife. They got into trouble in a nest in uh, near Werribee in July one year, and uh, they asked me to raise them and put them back into the wild. This, this is a brown falcon called Shinshu. Shinshu is derived from one of the Japanese words for the kamikaze pilots, which seemed to me to be pretty apt for a young brown falcon. And uh, that's a just an illustration in the book of a of, of a story I was telling. Uh, my father, when I first came back from Africa and, and Europe, having flown birds of prey, he was really interested in, to know how they were trained, and he asked for a demonstration. So I thought, well, I'll take Shinshu out and show what we're doing. He was about half trained, so uh, all I needed to do was just call him to the lure over a fairly easy distance, took him down, put him on the station trough, walked away about 50 metres and called him to the lure. And the biggest trouble with brown falcons is to train them without them getting really lazy and making them into what's known as a screamer. And Jinshu, when called, leant forward and went, gave a few nasty little cries of <coughs> dropped lightly to the ground and ran across to me, which was hardly, hardly the demonstration I was trying to elicit from him, I must admit. That's a, uh, that's a, uh, a painting that may be familiar to one or two of you. Um, that was uh, one of my really top peregrines, just... Uh, really trying to get that feeling of, 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 of looking at you, really that, that sort of really glaring-eyed look. And I did three paintings in quite quick su succession. And uh, it was at the time when Graham Pizzi was very near the end of his life. And I used to see Graham quite a lot. And I took each one across to him. Oh, no, you haven't quite got it in that one. No, you haven't quite got it. That was the last painting I did that he ever saw. And I took it across and showed it to him. And he, he just smiled and relaxed and said, Ah, you've got it at last. Uh. In 1974, uh, Rosemary Derham, Lady Derham from uh, uh, Melbourne University, uh, so David Derham's wife, rang me up and said, look, I've got baby magpies in the, in the, in the garden. You ought to come down and sketch them. So I did, and they became the, uh, the, the progenitors for years and years and years. Just every now and then I do a picture of a magpie. And they just expressed so much character. This was uh, just that terrible stage when they were trying to learn to fly without crashing. And that's the stage when they've learned to fly too bloody well and they're trying to crash you.
This is a sketch of a uh, of a koala down in Tower Hill. I found one that had descended to uh, to terra firmis, firma, firma for a moment, and uh, just uh, a good opportunity to to sketch it and get some of the character. And that's an example of a really careful study, really examining the fur texture and uh, and, and uh, just trying to get the feel of a koala. It's almost overworked. It's, it becomes a scientific drawing or an illustration, really. Same thing with a little uh, little red fox that was actually sketched in uh, in France. And every time I look at it now, as a sheep breeder, I think, God, that bloody thing's got a shoulder a shoulder dis disformation. It's got fleece rot. This is a, um, a scientific illustration, and I put it in because I just wanted to show that there's, to my mind, there's art in this illustration. And this is an illustration for a scientific paper describing the variation of plumages in brown falcons. And it, just, it does bring some memories back to me, because I painted that quite a long time ago, and it was at the beginning of the Society of Wildlife Artists. And uh, Alfred Dunbabin Butcher was still in charge of fisheries and wildlife in those days. I don't know whether any of you had permits for anything and remember that name. But Alf Butcher was a big man, and he came to the opening of that exhibition. And I was the president of the society, so I, I guided him around the, uh, the various paintings. And we were moving around the room, and there was a, a little old lady just in front of us. And she was kept on looking intently at some of these paintings. She got to this one, and she started to... And Alf was uh, backing off a bit. Anyway, eventually we got up to that painting. She turned around with a charming smile and said, you could almost blow the feathers on them, couldn't you? <laughs> And this is another illustration from the, the book on wrens, the, uh, the red-backed fairy wren, the smallest of the Australian fairy wrens. They live in the grass, the Teresian grasslands up in the north of Australia. And they're very frustrating, actually, because when you find them, they pop up out of the grass to see what's going on. I was trying to capture that characteristic. But then the males are very cunning, and they slip out the back of the mob, and you can never get to them because the other ones are always between you and them, and they're just leading you further and further away. More seriously, this I consider a painting, not an illustration. And it's one of two paintings I did, uh, really looking at the contrast between uh, threat and peace. Mm -hmm. And this was the peace of the environment and the implicit, implicit threat of the killer whales rising uh, through the water. And uh, each of them has got a, uh, a hint of a reference to Christianity in them. And uh, in this one, it's that huge gothic cathedral-like iceberg. Um, in this one, it's, uh, it's actually really trying to go back to those great paintings of the 1860s, the big Germanic wildlife paintings, and uh, looking at the threat of the ocean, uh, which is really the great habitat which man has not let, yet learned how to control. It's, uh, it, it's just in control of us. And... Um, and using the uh, the male um, wandering albatross, uh, particularly a male because they're they're much whiter, and sort of trying to infer the white dove of peace, uh, and uh, having it flying out of the dark into the sunlight, as a uh, as a reference to coming out of a threatening environment to a safer environment, and it was coupled with the concept of the uh, the Japanese fishing industry, and the amount of albatross being uh, being killed by long line fishing. And it's based very much on the format of uh, Hokusai's uh, uh, woodprint, the uh, the wave off of Kurosawa. Uh, 
and the um, Mount Fuji. It's one of his series of 36 views of Mount Fuji. There's Mount Fuji converted into a wave. So the reference is absolutely there. Uh, unless we control the Japanese fishing and the long line, then the albatross are, uh, are finished. Because Nigel Brothers at that stage was reckoning there were 36,000 uh, albatross being killed by long line fishing per year. They have one, one uh, baby every few years, and there's just no way they can carry that sort of, uh, that sort of problem. This was a lovely occasion. Uh, Jen and I were at a place called Jordan Ponds, which I think became the title of a film in the long run. And uh, it's in Maine in America. And this is the, the loon, the, uh, what in Europe is called the Great Northern Diver. And we were walking along the side of a lake. And it was a sort of grey overcast day and the, uh, the water was grey and nothing. It was like a Sunday picnic, really. You're very pretty but not really moving. And uh, the, uh, the loons were sort of walking, were working alongside us, sometimes quite close, sometimes a long way out. And uh, we just followed them and kept on observing them. And they swam into a little bay where there was a conifer forest behind them. And suddenly the reflections came alive and you could see how they had evolved to have that, uh, that plumage, how camouflaged it was. And uh, I did a, uh, a similar painting of a, a Pinatou petrel in Antarctica, just looking at the same, the same thoughts, the, uh, the, the camouflage that occurred. That one was bought, actually the previous one was bought by an American who rang me and said, can you take down payments? He said, I'll pay you $1,000 US each month. Uh, he said, I'll do that for a year. And, uh, and then his, his, uh, his, his, his partner, uh, was a lovely woman, she was a Canadian, and she rang me about 4.30 one morning. And uh, I wasn't really very eager for a phone call. She said, Dwayne's left me. I said, I'm really sorry to hear that, Sandy. Oh, that's, that's terrible news. She said, no, 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 that's not why I rang to tell you. She said, uh, he walked off down the garden path. He had that picture under his arm. And I said, have you got all you want? He said, yeah. He said, I got my toothbrush and I got the picture. And I thought, God, it's, a, it's an amazing woman to ring you up and tell you that. But this one was bought uh, by a, a scientist in the Max Planck Institute in, uh, in Heidelberg in Germany. Uh, when I first got back from England, I was asked to give a talk to the Friends of the National Gallery. And uh, I was brash and young and opinionated. And there was a lady who kept on saying, uh, when are you going to paint crimson rosellas flying through the mountain ash forest? And frankly, it was the last thing on my mind. And eventually I said so, which was very rude of me. But uh, that was painted in response to a commission from the age. She wanted me to paint six species of trees and uh, this was the mountain ash and the uh, and uh, the alpine ash, eucalyptus, uh, sorry, eucalyptus delicatensis and eucalyptus regnans. Sadly, uh, the, um, the the mist in the background isn't mist at all. It's the uh, the earliest smoke in the 1983 bushfires, which wiped out that habitat in uh, on the Asherid Way. This is a, a painting, a lovely property up in New South Wales. I won't name it because the, uh, some of the people that were involved with it are not that far from Port Ferry. But uh, I was asked to go up and uh, do three paintings, one for each of the children because they were going to sell the, uh, the property. And uh, it was absolutely beautiful, that property. 
But when you got to the boundary, you could see what overgrazing did to the environment. And the, it was just such a contrast between this place and the, and the, and the boundary. And then sadly, when it, was, um, when it was bought, it was bought by the Twynham Pastoral Company. And uh, when I was up there sketching for these, uh, these, these paintings, uh, you could see that they'd already laid irrigation pipe to the boundary and that was going to go straight under cotton. And they'd worked out what we all know, that the first year you pay the fines, the second year you're in profit. Sorry, I'll go back one. That is also, that's the front paddock on that property. And uh, it was actually sketched under absolutely pure blue skies and uh, still weather conditions. And it, just to give it some life, I tried to use the colours that are in the landscape in the, sky, uh, in the cloud colours. And I, with a bit of cooperation from God, who's, uh, it's very humbling really, we uh, created a small wind to give it some movement in the trees. This was another one of the ages commissions on trees. And as Jenny said, it's absolutely bloody typical. There's three trees in it, two of them are dead and one's half, of the, half out of the picture. But uh, the concept on that was a bit more complex. I was taking this coastline and I was using the, uh, the parallel of the, uh, the waterfront and the sand hills to suggest the, uh, the double helix of DNA picked up by the, uh, by the birds leaving the tree to suggest the, uh, the relationship of everything that's in that picture. And every single plant in that picture can be identified as to its species and even its subspecies. Some of them have been reclassified or things like that. Conostephala brownii is now a different genus, I think, but uh, um, that was the idea behind the painting. Ah, sorry, I'm getting too heavy with it. Uh, this was a little painting done really just out of my own interest, and it was, uh, it's based around Marie. It's a, uh, it's a house with the normal amount of rubbish and refuse and things around it few broken down cars. Actually, that car was at Itabuka up near Bulia, and those were uh, ones that Charlie McCubbin and I both uh, both have painted at some stage. Uh, we nicknamed them Darby and Joan. But the idea was to try and examine what happens to Aboriginal children when the tribal structure starts to break down and how lonely it becomes and how they turn to the animals for their company. And uh, none of us will actually t say this, will you? But uh, I hadn't got an Aboriginal girl to sketch at the time. And it's actually my niece, darkened. But the idea was to have the tracks going nowhere, the old cars just uh, breaking down. One of the things that's happened in art is we've, we've got no uh, symbolism left. I mean, symbolism was very strong in art coming out of the Christian influences of, uh, of the Middle Ages and uh, right through to the 1860s, 1880s. But now the symbols have all sort of fallen out of, uh, out of, dis out of use. And that spilt teapot with the, uh, the, 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 the drained tea is uh, representing the withdrawal of the British Empire and the, uh, the girls just feeling the ground to see if it's still damp. This uh, painting is on the wall out there. And uh, that's a painting called Over the Range. It's the, it's the Sierra Range in the Grampians. And uh, people ask me how long it takes me to do a painting and they get face to the wall for a while, then you do a bit and then you sort of run into a problem and you think how the hell do I sort that out and eventually come back to it. I sketched the landscape for that in uh, January 1974 
and I signed it finished in August 2016. It changed a few times on the way through. I mean, it used to have uh, some uh, crimson rosellas flying in a long way down there and a peregrine on a rock here about to sort of just leave the rock and, 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 and go down. But it's been burnt twice in my lifetime, that landscape, absolutely raised. And one of the birds which comes back from, uh, from fire very well is the uh, yellow-tailed yellow black cockatoo. And there's something, something really rollicking about the way they sort of cruise quietly through the air, muttering to each other like a squeaky door. And I wanted to get the feeling that uh, you were up there flying with them. So I mentally projected myself up about 300 feet so that uh, we changed the perspective and I was there with them. And then because, uh, sorry, because I was uh, so far up there, we had nothing to refer to. There was no reference for the landscape. So I... Uh, I brought this little rock, which was actually down there somewhere up here, and uh, painted it to look like a, a sort of a dolmen, a tombstone in, uh, in, in, in the memoriam for the bush that had been there before it was burnt. And that basically is just uh, a drift through the way I go about painting and why I paint. And uh, the book goes into that quite a lot, the people I've worked with as mentors, and very much the way the, uh, the, the science of, uh, of, of um, wildlife art creeps into it and the importance of learning the science. In my mind, I used to think that science and, uh, and, and, and art came from different sides of the brain and they were in conflict. But really, I think that both of them are trying to find a deeper truth in the subject that they're studying. So I think they're actually quite complementary. But the other parts of the book are uh, mostly people I've be seen people I've uh, worked with, little stories about one thing or another that happened. Um, how are we going, Joe? Uh, can I, I'll tell one little story quickly. Okay. So the one story I did put there, which I, 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 I really found interesting, it was a station hand that I worked with uh, when I was a kid, and he said uh, that there was a paddock there with a big, uh, a big dam we had, and he rode out there going around the stock one day, and he rode up onto the bank, and there was a black duck with a big uh, mob of little ducklings around there, caught right out in the middle with a swamp harrier attacking it. And the swamp harrier kept on coming back down and trying to grab her or grab the ducklings particularly. And every time it did, she'd stand on her tail and splash it with water and drive it off. And all the time she was quietly moving the ducklings closer and closer to the reeds. And uh, you could see that she was getting exhausted because it's very hard work splashing water at a swamp harrier like that. And equally, the hawk was getting a bit tired, but uh, it was clearly coming to a climax. And they got closer and closer to the reeds, and eventually all the ducklings had the chance when the hawk was getting hot again to scutter into the reeds, and the hawk sort of lost its temper and turned its, uh, turned its attention to the duck. And she was getting more and more tired. It was quite obvious she was in trouble. And then it came down once too often, and she grabbed it by a primary and dragged it underwater and drowned it. Now, I don't know how you view that. I mean, uh, we, 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 we've given all sorts of uh, uh, anthropomorphic interpretations, but basically she was a, a female duck responding to maternal instinct. And uh, I don't know that the drowning of a, uh, of a hawk is all that, uh, all that painful anyway. I mean, I know when I drowned, or very nearly drowned in, uh, in Fiji a few years ago when Hamish was working over there, there was actually a great sense of peace. And uh, it's not a bad way to die, I wouldn't have said. <laughs> But anyway, uh, the hawk, hawk can answer that better than I can. 
Anyway, thank you very much for coming. And uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, yes, certainly. I think the little, uh, the, well, I think the the sketchbook with the elephant, the white faced uh, tree ducks, the little witty wagtails, those are just just linear drawings. I mean, the the pencil doesn't actually even have to leave the paper. Uh, just anything to get get some idea down. Now, David Reed Henry, who was a mentor of mine, he was really uh, he was ruthless about putting things down that you couldn't see. And he said, if you can't see the eye, put a dot. If you can't see the beak, just put a straight line. But just to record the sort of expression of the bird, the posture, whatever you need to put down, just to be able to learn from it next time. That answer, would you? Good. Chrissy, yeah. Look, every, every idea has got its own medium, really. And uh, there's some things that I've started in one medium and then changed to another. And in fact, I've mentioned in the book that there's a, uh, there's a painting in Canada that's got a, a desert scene, which I've done as a, uh, as a screen print uh, in oils underneath it. And then I've painted a, 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 a aquatic scene over the top of that. And in fact, the fellow that bought it rang me one, one night and said, uh, See, that painting's sort of bubbling. It looks as if the paint's peeling off. And I thought, oh, God, this is, this is bad. I said, get it back from, the, from America. It's going to be hell. Anyway, I talked to him more and more, and eventually it became quite obvious that what he was talking about was the, uh, the, grain, the brush strokes of putting gesso on the background before I painted it. And it was no problem at all. But uh, uh, it's just whatever, whatever medium suits the, suits the idea. Um, I mean, I just think you, you learn a bit from each medium and that transfers into the, the other medium you use, I think. That's what my wife says. <laughs> so, yeah. If I was any good as a photographer, I wouldn't have to draw. Um, but no, I've, ne I've never ever done that. There are, my great concern is the amount of art that is being done from photographs. To my mind, the camera is a mechanical apparatus which stands between you and the subject. And uh, it's a lazy way of observing. And uh, I mean, if I take a photograph of something, I can't go home and remember what it was. I just honestly, I couldn't sit down and, uh, and draw it from my memory. And memory, is, it's a bit like learning to ride a bicycle. I mean, you see your siblings, they're cruising around on bikes. You think, oh God, I'll never be able to do that. And then suddenly it's dead easy. The more you practice it, the more you, the more, the more you get good at it. And the bloke who really mentored me, David Reed Henry, had an incredible photographic memory. And the secret to it was that he'd always drawn from his mind. And uh, I used to sit down and I'd sit in front of a bird and he'd be trying to draw and the page would flap over from the wind and the fly would land on it. You'd leave a smudge across where you crushed the fly. You're trying to take your glasses off and put the binoculars up. And, you're sort of getting more and more suicidal as the drawing ran off the, ran off the rails. And uh, I tend to look carefully at things much more now and then go home and draw them afterwards from my mind. But David Reed Henry used to sit down after dinner and he'd take out a piece of paper and he'd draw something he saw in the Salon Jungle 40 years before, perfectly. Never used a rubber. Occasionally he'd sort of put the head down, think the attitude was wrong, so he'd draw another body on that head so it was a different attitude. And I, uh, I can remember uh, the gallery owner, Harry Horswell's daughter, uh, Victoria, 
or gigs they're doing one night. Uh, David, you always draw the bird and then you put the branch it's sitting on in. Why don't you draw the branch first? Because the bird always adjusts to the shape of the branch when it lands. It really disturbed him. It really absolutely failed up his memory for a bit. <laughs> but I do take photographs because I, I, I give talks and I, I, I need photographs for them. And, uh, but I, I don't use photographs to draw from. Have we talked to a standstill? Ah, sorry. <laughs> Well, there again, I, I talk in the book about how uh, I, I, I was self-taught. I grew out of sculpture, and uh, I uh, had a, a sculpture exhibition in London in 1969, and they just displayed the sculptures on top of the drawings I'd done for them. And there was one particular sculpture that had taken me three and a half weeks, and the drawing had taken about 30 minutes, and the drawing sold for two, uh, two guineas less than the sculpture. And I thought, well, uh, there's an economic message in there somewhere. And I am no great mathematician, but I reckon I can work that one out. And another gallery saw the drawings and offered me a one-man exhibition of paintings. And I thought, great, this is, this is the opportunity. Um, I went and talked to Professor Rup uh, um, Robert Gooden, who was the deputy director of the, uh, the Royal College of Art at the time. And I said, look, should I go to art school? because I'm in a real hole here. I know nothing about how to paint, but I've got an exhibition coming up. And he said, well, you can come to art school, but he said, we'll be so frightened of uh, disturbing your little mind that we won't teach you anything. And uh, he said, you're an exhibiting artist already. Uh, you can draw very well. He said, my advice is to go to, to the galleries and look around the various exhibitions you see and select paintings that you really admire and then go and talk to the artists and see if you can work with them in the field, which is what I did. And people like uh, Terry Cuneo, who uh, was a brilliant artist at the time. I mean, he was a portraitist. He did lots of uh, Western paintings. He was the bloke that all, did all those terrific paintings of trains for posters after the war to try and bring people into the British railways again. Uh, he's a very, very talented artist. And I spent some time in France with him in the Camargue but um, his wife came down with him and that upset him a bit. And, uh, uh, and she'd sort of get up in the morning and say, Terry, I want you to take me into Owl this morning. I want to have a hairdo. So Terry had gone down there to paint Le Moulin de Dede, had his canvas up and he'd suddenly have a fit of temper. He'd say, bloody Kate, and another flash of red would go in across the, <laughs> the shadow. But, uh, I mean, it was, the, it was the goodness of people like that that, that really helped me develop. Robert Gilmore, David Reed Henry, Terry Cooney are the three of the really important ones to me. I think there's a my, my feeling is that it was a much, much wider problem than just the feral animal situation. The, I mean, we are spending squillions on things like uh, orange-bellied parrots, swift parrots, spoon-billed sandpipers, sand whereas we can spend as much as we like on the individual species, but it's habitat that governs whether it survives or not. And the thing that really governs whether habitat survives or not is the, uh, is the size of the habitat and the inter interconnection with other habitats. And one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, 
the, uh, the, the movement we put in place to try and connect the, Otway, the, the Great Otways National Park with the Grampians through a whole system of, uh, of corridors, that it gives it a better chance of surviving. The, the Grampians is too small as a national park to be really sustainable. And on the examples in overseas, there's a little national park in, um, in America called the, called the Bryce Canyon National Park. It's 4,000 hectares and its red fox population died out. Well, cripes, I mean, they're surviving in South Melbourne. I mean, uh, it, it, it must be pretty serious when, uh, when something as rugged as a red fox can't, can't exist in an environment. Um, so I think that uh, the resilience of a habitat is really dictated by its, uh, it, its diversity and its interconnectivity, and they can cope with some degree of feral pests under those circumstances. But I, mean, I think it's really, really serious what we're not doing about the uh, feral pests. When my son, uh, uh, well, I was in Antarctica actually. I, I left and my son was at Mortlake Primary School and I came back and he got a scholarship to, uh, to Geelong Grammar, which I'd never actually sanctioned, and, uh, but we're pretty pleased that he did it. And uh, anyway, apparently one of the questions they asked in the uh, scholarship questionnaire is, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he was, I suppose he must have been about eight or nine then, and he said, uh, I want to be pest control officer at Mootwingie. Because he's, he'd been up there and he'd seen the goat problem. It's, it's solvable, solvable. I mean, we're solving it more and more now. We've got fox problems. That's, that's, solved, that, that's solvable by genetic mutations. We can do it with mosquitoes. Why can't we do it with rabbits and foxes? We can do it with cats. But we're so frightened of, uh, of disturbing the people that have got cats in, in the urban centres that we don't remove one of the major pests on, uh, on, on fauna in Australia. I talk about that a lot in the book. But, um, no, I, 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 th I agree, it's very serious, but I think we've got bigger problems than just feral pests. It's very hard to talk to kids now and give them real encouragement about the future, I find. Yes, yes, a huge success. Now, what that was all about was that uh, wolves were always in Yellowstone, as were uh, grizzlies. But when they took them out, there was no sort of uh, nothing to keep the elk off the flats. And the elk got in and they grazed down all the willow and they pulverized the flats and, uh, and, and, uh, and gave problems. And uh, that meant that some of the smaller animals started to die out because they hadn't got the cover to be able to be protected. The coyotes got into them. Uh, bringing the wolves back in just chased the elk back off the flats. It controlled the coyotes, and it just re-established the, um, the, the the pattern. Now it's very hard if you're a beef farmer and you're getting the odd uh, the odd heifer taken out by wolves to say, well, that's a really good idea. But the fact is that we've got to come to grips with it in Australia with the dingo ultimately, because the reason we're losing so much of our small fauna is because we've got cats and foxes right through the uh, the country. We brought the dingo back in. You can forget about them. And suddenly you've got things like Smith's Opsis, Crassicordata, the little uh, fat-tailed nunart. You've got the uh, all sorts of other small marsupials which are going to come back into the habitat, and it's something we've got to consider. I do talk in the book about the elephants at the, in the Gonorrhea Zoo, and they uh, they they uh, said they were going to make a national park in the Gonorrhea Zoo, uh, so they started to move the African people that were lived along the Lundy and the and, and the Sabi rivers out of the uh, the area so that it would be National Park. Now immediately the elephants that used to walk in 30, 40, 50, 60 kilometres to drink 
and then get the hell out of it before, uh, before dawn because there were people there found that they could come in there and they could camp on the riverbank and no one was there to worry them. And they just made it into a moonscape. And they used those tusks to dig into the baobab trees to get the fibre and the water. They knocked down branches on every other tree so they can reach the foliage. And it was just obliterated. And I don't think they've sorted that one out yet. There's still huge elephant damage along the Lundy and the Saudi rivers. Uh, well, how should they deal with them, or how are they going to deal with them? How they're going to deal with them is keep on making money out of issuing licences, because that's the problem with uh, with most of these hunting facets. They make too much money out of the licences to, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to scrap them. And there are people sitting in offices that are only employed because there are people hunting those things. Um, and uh, they, that, that's what gives them the money. But the fact is that they're a feral animal and they're a real problem. And again, that's something that's solvable. Yes, sorry. <laughs> well, the thing that's on my mind a little bit next is uh, I've, uh, there's, a, there's a little company called uh, So50 trying to... Uh, run podcasts on, on people doing things uh, that are of interest once they're 50 years old. And they found it so interesting that I'd done things when I was over 50 that they said, oh, well, you're interested in birds, you'd be interested in flight. So they want me to go down to Westendon Airport uh, uh, where they've got one of these funnels which squirts air up at an immense speed, uh, go up to about seven metres high, and learn to fly in that air column. So uh, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> So uh, this this may be my last public performance of a grade. But I mean, it, it interests me though, because I mean, I, I've done a lot of work with birds of prey, and as I say, you're trying to get into the mind of the bird when you when you're drawing it. And uh, I, I'd love to feel like what, what it's like to, to have the wind under your wings. Yeah, it does. Mind you, I've, I've had peregrines when I've been flying them to the lure that have flown into the ground or flown into my back. And I could easily, that could be the logical next step in my existence, I feel. Okay, Joe? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I went out and got a second pen because the first one was running out. <laughs> <laughs> so 